This podcast is shareable. Shareable is the podcast fueled entirely by curiosity. Every episode features exciting guests who share valuable advice and insights, how-to guides, and practical takeaways. Join me as I explore the awe-inspiring stories about overcoming the odds, the secret formulas that gave each guest their unique superpower, and the moments that remind us of our shared humanity. Get ready to be excited, delighted, and possibly even astonished, because this podcast is shareable. Today on Shareable, I've, I've honestly, I, I can truly say that I don't know if I've ever come across someone that I said, I really, really have to have this person on my show that I didn't know at all prior to seeing them come up. Ed Thompson, welcome to Shareable. I am so happy to have you here. For those who have never met you, heard your name, seen you on the internet, come across you, tell people some things that's important for them to know about you. Absolutely, Jeff. Great to be here with you. Thank you for having me on. Uh, Ed Thompson, I'm the CEO and founder of Optimize. We are a neuroinclusion training company that works with some of the biggest brands in the world like Accenture, Google, IBM uh, and Salesforce. I've had my personal journey around this topic myself, having had a traumatic brain injury, been involved with strategic diversity programs, eventually putting two and two together and thinking the world needs to know more about the fact everybody has a different brain, building the company, uh, seeing the reaction we have from the organizations we've worked with, which is often quite emotional on the part of neurodivergent people who've never been in an organization before that cared about them. And also often quite profound from leaders, managers, for example, who say, honestly, I had no idea what this was, but this is the best thing I've seen in leadership in 20 years. And all of that inspired me at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. And I was on a socially distanced walk with my wife. And I remember saying to her, I think the world's going a bit crazy. Maybe I'll have time to write that book I've been talking about. And you know, three years later, that, that book uh, is now available, which is really an encapsulation of, of, of that journey that I and we have, have been on and hopefully some interesting uh, tips for folks as well to to start bringing this to to their work. I absolutely love it. I am so excited to talk to you because as my listeners know, I am very open and I talk a lot about uh, being uh, someone with ADHD. I was a very early diagnosis. I found out my early teens um, and I recently came to self-diagnose and understand that I'm on the autism spectrum. Um, I am of the belief beyond a shadow of a doubt that I am on that spectrum and that there are certain things that apply. So I'm super interested in the topic personally, but also professionally, my business partner and I, we bring a neuroinclusive angle to all of our productivity work that we do with clients and building out Asana and Monday and ClickUp and all these different spaces so that it works for different brain types. Um, and then I also just as an entrepreneur, you know, so many of the times that I was in organizations, I felt unemployable, psychologically unemployable. I just didn't feel safe. I felt like I just had to get out of there. No one understood me. Why didn't they just let me do it my way? And I feel like I had so much work trauma from people not understanding how to manage someone or how to work with someone who is different in the way that their brain processes the world. So I'm super excited to talk to you for just so many different reasons. I love that you wrote this book. I haven't had a chance to go through the whole book yet because we 
We just met and we were able to get this podcast scheduled. So I'm super jazzed to be able to talk to you about things. I have a, a gigantic, gigantic list of questions that I need to uh, get into with you. But before we go there, I ask a big question at the top of every show just to get to know my guests and see where you're going with things. Um, what is the dent you wish to make in the universe? What do you, why are you doing what you do? What do you hope to leave behind as a legacy? How do you hope to impact the world? What's your dent? I think that's, I think that's quite easy because I think um, we, you know, have all found ourselves at this moment in the late 2010s and now 2020s where the world and the business world is waking up to this fundamental fact about our species that we all have a different brain. Somehow humans have been collaborating for tens of thousands of years without ever surfacing this reality and exploring what we can all do about it. Uh, I'm amazed, but in a way happy that this is something that I and we can get our teeth into today uh, and change. And so I hope human collaboration of the future is infused with what we call neuroinclusion, a basic appreciation of the fact that any interaction, and of course interactions at work, take place between people who fundamentally experience the world differently, who process information differently, and so on. And that's a great thing if we are sensitive to it and we embrace it. And I think we can not only uh, help people feel included in a way that you, Jeff, just described you didn't in the past. But I hope this is bigger. I hope we can just catapult human progress by truly leveraging that diversity of thought that we naturally have, but we've buried it, buried in the shadows. Yeah. I, and I love, um, you know, whenever I hear the term diversity of thought come up in so many instances, that term is loaded and used in a context where people are using it to shut out and shut down conversations about sort of a broader diversity, equity, and inclusion conversation. But in the context of what you're using, I know that you you also have a background where this kind of developed, where this became your focus of it. And I'm curious if you can create the kind of connection for people before we get you know deep, deep into all the questions, but where is the connection between neurodiversity and broader diversity, equity, inclusion movements? And, and how do we tie those things together so that we see the kind of the principles that are a through line between those two things. Are there any fundamental pieces of what leaders need to do, what, um, you know, what people need to do in terms of voicing their own boundaries and needs? Like, wh where do you see the connection between these two ideas? Yeah, it's a great question. Something I think about a lot. I wrote an article about it and it's come out, I think, a little bit in, in, in the book. Uh, I think if we start with humans have different brains, we want to end with a place where that's just normal that we appreciate that we leverage it and this becomes in a sense a collaboration thing uh, i think there's a zone of if you like dei and inclusivity between those two points because what's happened is that we haven't been thinking about neurodiversity we haven't been thinking about neuroinclusion as a result, we have these norms in society, norms in workplaces, which disadvantage some while working just about for others. And those have particularly disadvantaged and in some cases excluded uh, people who are neurodivergent uh, in some form. And we know this because of the macro data. We also know this from many, many stories. And you just gave some of your own where you'd experienced some of this 
marginalization, the othering. So I think in that middle zone, neuroinclusion is absolutely an urgent DEI topic. We work with organizations that proclaim their inclusivity and their commitment to diversity, but list every attribute of difference apart from the fundamental one that our brains are different. And I think, you know, that needs to change. We talk at Optimize about living into that promise of inclusivity and belonging and not being able to do that if we don't appreciate that 20% of people think differently. And those people have been particularly marginalized by a lack of attention to this. And to your question, I think it's a lot of the same aspects of inclusion that people have seen before, whether it's... um, microaggressions, whether it's unconscious bias and so on. Ableism, of course, is a sort of uh, link with physical disability, discrimination. A lot of that stuff is at play here. It's just not something that we've, if you like, sort of turned the lens on. Got it. Got it. What's your, um, what's your kind of origin story for this? You know, you, you, um, you came to found this company but it didn't all start there. This wasn't like your life's work. You kind of came to it. Um, and you mentioned that, you know, you've had your own experience in and around this world. Um, can you kind of take through when you saw the opportunity for this and why you chose to explore this path and go down this path and and dedicate the work and time that you're doing towards these outcomes? Sure, yeah. And, and I think I have a an unusual combination of the personal and the the business piece, if you like. And I don't shy away from that. I, I really feel like something I'm bringing to this topic is, you know, having been a, a business person myself, having been on the leadership team of a of a tech company and understanding the talent challenges and priorities of organizations. I think, you know, I'm able to speak to those and hopefully with what we're doing, design solutions that, you know, businesses buy into. And, and then, you know, through that, you see social impact. But to Yeah, to backtrack, I mean, just about a decade ago, I suppose, I'd never heard of the term neurodiversity either. But I had had a traumatic brain injury that uh, knocked me out of full-time work for about five years. And eventually, building back my career, I was working in a tech company in London, and I was working for the CEO. And I saw firsthand how... HR priorities, as were, have become CEO priorities. So the things that were keeping my boss up at night were we can't hire talent fast enough and we've got all these empty, you know, open roles and we can't find uh, talent for them. To some extent, everybody sort of looks the same and thinks the same and has kind of the same background. And, you know, is that the way to build the innovative tech company of the future? Probably not. What can we do about it? So Rather to my surprise, I got involved very much from a business lens in trying to meet those challenges. And that took me to strategic diversity programs uh, in London. And of course, with them, you see the impact on individuals who get hired and might not have been hired before. But I was interested as well in the impact on the organization. You could just see how this was energizing the organizations we worked with how you saw diversity of thought we mentioned, but new perspectives and people in these organizations energized by the fact that their organization was connecting with their community, becoming more representative, 
and so on. So I wanted to capture and sort of build on that magic. And that was where I sort of drew this line towards neurodiversity. Again, I'd had a brain injury myself and I'd struggled with explaining that to colleagues. And I also have neurodivergent family members. Um, and I think started from that, looking at, gosh, what about this topic of brains, right? This is something that organizations don't understand at all. And yet, look, you know, going back to my previous role and here I am in a boardroom with the CEO and, you know, how do we find talent that thinks differently? Duh, you know, it wasn't difficult to, to put these things together. I think what I realized was organizations and people just know very little about this. And that's been confirmed by the research we've done. About 60% of learners we have at Optimize put their hand up and say, don't know anything about this. Yeah, that's been my experience too. And I'm actually... Um... I think it's probably a good opportunity for us, you know, this early and on the show to uh, maybe actually give just a very basic understanding to people like, so, so what is neurodiversity? Like, what does that even mean? And as you're going through that, if you could, I think one thing that's really, really helpful, I know it's helpful when I explain it to people is not just to tell people about a condition necessarily, but to, to kind of point out how that might change how someone experiences work. So I'll give you just as an example for me is that um, and this happens a lot with people that I coach or with people that, you know, just are friends of mine and they're in leadership roles. They will tell me about someone on their team who maybe has trouble showing up on time or who has uh, difficulty uh, understanding the passage of time and maybe spends a little bit too much time doing one thing when they should have, you know, kind of knocked it out or they have difficulty getting something done in a half hour between two things. And I explained to them, that sounds a lot like some things that are characteristic of ADHD, you know, time blindness, not understanding the passage of time, uh, task paralysis, not understanding, uh, not being able to begin a task when you know you don't have enough time to get into it. Um, and just in general issues with time. So I explained that to them and they're like, and, and you can now see when someone has a brain where that's different. It's sort of like saying to a diabetic, we'll just make more insulin. It doesn't work that way your brain doesn't perceive time the right way. So that would, of course, impact the way that you show up at work. So when I explain ADHD, that's one of the ways that I do is I give some examples. If you could explain neurodiversity just as a concept, and if you could, as you're going through some of them, maybe give some small examples of how people can kind of wrap their head around how that might make things more difficult for people uh, who are in one of these categories or, or have one of these uh, different conditions. Yeah, absolutely. Well, neurodiversity means... Everybody has a different brain. It, it is sort of what it sounds like it, it, it should mean, uh, although I think it's often uh, wrongly linked only to, say, autism or dyslexia and so on. Literally, Very pathologized. Like we often pathologize yeah, it. Like it's and different. And you see those graphics that say, you know, these are these are sort of neurodiversity. And actually, no, and we've really got to lean into this fact of, of human um, neurodiversity because that because. I think we found when working with uh, folks in the community, neurodivergent professionals, that othering can be really damaging. And what people want is an opportunity to be themselves and to contribute to their best work. Everybody wants that. A neurodivergent person might be more mission critical if that's not allowed. But we can't just draw these lines. We also know, you know, 90% of people typically don't disclose. So if we're only waiting for you know, neurodiversity is just the people who told us that they're neurodivergent and, you know, so that's the problem. But let's let's go back to, to, to what it is. So 
everybody has a different brain, everybody experiences the world uh, differently. Uh, some broad profiles, neurotypes as they're known, combinations of traits uh, are more or less common within that human spectrum. Uh, and some people as a result have a particular distinctive, what's called neuroidentity within that human spectrum, like ADHDers, like autistic people, like dyslexic people. Some people might have multiple neuroidentities. The default, if you like, is neurotypical. Some people have a, uh, a sense that they don't have one of those minority identities. Some people have just never thought about it. And those neuro-minority labels are terms, as you mentioned, have come from the medical world over the last 100 years or so. Uh, typically, um, as you say, differences pathologized. So, you know, what can a kid not do as well as their peers? Let's give it a medical label. Uh, but today, most neurodivergent people we talk to simply think they have a different brain wiring than those with more typical profiles, one with strengths as well as uh, as well as challenges. What are some of those differences? Uh, a lot of it at the time, it falls into buckets around things like communication, uh, executive functions, you mentioned things like time blindness um, and sensory differences. So you might have a particular strong preference for communicating uh, via email so that you don't have the stress of processing verbal cues at the same time as the core information being imparted. That's a problem at work. If your boss says, right, come into my office, I'm going to give you three things I need you to do. You struggle to process that simply because of the way your, your brain is wired. Um, executive function differences could be uh, around, say, short-term memory. So how do you make notes and, and the pressure of uh, trying to keep up with the conversational flow when you're being asked multiple questions at once. That's something I struggle with, actually, having had my um, brain injury. And then sensory differences, which are often, I think, overlooked. But your brain, actually, to some extent, is related to your overall sensory experience of the world. And if you have a particular sensitivity to uh, noise, touch, smell, and so on, you might struggle in a open plan, anything goes office environment that works for many, but doesn't work for you. And in an extreme case, we interviewed somebody at Optimize who said, my organization told me we're moving office. As soon as I saw the new office, I knew I knew I, knew I had to leave. Because they simply saw, well, look, this just isn't going to work for me. And of course, they were never consulted. Now, another organization we worked with was a bank and they were refitting the floor of one of their offices. And they surveyed everybody who was gonna sit there up front. And they said, you know, what sort of an organization, what sort of a space is gonna make you comfortable? So they tried to short circuit that issue, I think in a great positive fashion by saying, you know, let's actually see what, what, people, uh, what people want. The challenge at work, of course, as I've said, is nobody's thinking about these things. So what happens is you have these norms. So open plan offices is a great example. Uh, an over-reliance on interviewing is another one. That works for many people who are comfortable in that sort of uh, social context. 
but that doesn't work for others who find that difficult to process and stressful because of the way their brain is wired. So we have these norms, they work for some, they don't work uh, for everybody. There's so much here to unpack and, and I have so many different threads I want to pull on um, because you know this is the world you're working in and it's something that I'm so fascinated by. Um, so there's, uh, God, there's just a couple different places. I do want to talk about accommodations because I think um, there is a conversation among those across the, the um, I don't want to say spectrum, but like the, the, the awareness of neurodiversity, there are people who don't get it at all. There's people who really get it. And then there's kind of people everywhere in between of that. And there's this conversation around like, what are reasonable accommodations to request? Like what are, what is, what should we be doing versus like, what is disruptive to operations? What is discrimination versus what is, so there's all of that there. There's also this conversation around, you know, we, we kind of brought up recently the, um, you had mentioned, and we had talked about the pathologizing of it. Like, can you, is there something that you can't do as well as your peers? Okay, well, let's give it a name. And that's, that's the disorder you have. But there's also the other side of it. There's a lot of people out there who have learned to work within their system and they will broadcast it as a superpower. I know that there are times where I do that. I I'm very open that it's both. There are times where I'm fully disabled and there's times where I feel like I'm, I'm flying and I'm operating on a very high level. So there's that there too. But I think before we get to any of those, and I just wanted to put those out there to put pins in them that they need to be talked about. One that I see come up time and time again, and I'm curious how you re- how you respond to this. But I see a lot of times people are saying, oh, all of a sudden, everybody nowadays is autistic. Everybody's got ADHD. It's in fashion to be neurodivergent. And there's a rise in people who are self-identifying or who are coming out and talking about it. And then that is leading to a conversation that's happening more and more at work about accommodations and about the different types of brains at work. I'm curious your take on it. Why are we talking about it more now than ever before? Why are more people identifying or sharing and disclosing their identity uh, when they haven't in the past? What do you think is going on right now? And how do you respond to that that general idea that people are saying, oh, everybody's autistic now, everybody's ADHD. Well, I think that's, uh, you know, an overreaction and and obviously not true in itself. Uh, but I, everything else I think is, is great because uh, we don't have perfect data, but the more we learn about humans and brains, the, the more obvious some of these differences are. Uh, diagnostic uh, rates or rather diagnostic access has improved over the last few years. So I think more uh, kids uh, are being diagnosed and then parents are thinking, gosh, that's sort of me as well. Most of the time, that's a positive journey of self-discovery and then an ability to have better self-advocacy to say, look, I now sort of understand my brain and have a, a label for it. And this means I can then communicate to people about how my brain works and how you might get the best out of me. And as you mentioned, Jeff, uh, neurodivergent people bring extraordinary strengths uh, to work. Um, you only have to look at the top business people of our time. Many, if not most, appear to be neurodivergent to, to, to see that uh, play out. Uh, I think it's that. I also think it's um, the cultural context changing that the pathologizing of neurodivergent, uh, marginalized neurodivergent people as solely disabled. And I think that's changed as, for example, some of those business people, sports people, celebrities and so on in the social media age say, no, 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 I'm neurodivergent. 
and you haven't heard from people like me, but actually my neurodivergence is has been a, a major key to my success. Yes, I faced barriers because people haven't understood this, but actually the resilience I've built plus my intrinsic brain power have you know taken me to uh, to these heights. So I, I I don't think clearly not everybody is autistic, and I, it feels like an overreaction to to say that. I think we should all be welcoming each other's open self-advocacy around how we all think if we're trying to build the best teams if we're leaders trying to lead the best teams the more people feel comfortable saying this is how i work this is how i think the better chance we have of building a stronger team and making everybody more productive yeah i'm 100 percent behind that it reminds me of um as, as you were talking through that and um you know, really thinking through being able to advocate for yourself and and what your needs are. And I know for myself, the more I've learned about how my brain works, the more I get to advocate for it. And and the better I tend to perform when my the people that I'm working with understand my needs and my strengths. And um, it reminds me of this cartoon that I've seen a bunch of times float up where it's like neurodivergent person says to their neurotypical friend, hey, I just got diagnosed with ADHD or autism or whatever. And they go, oh, I'm sorry. But that same person goes and they talk to their neurodivergent friend. They're like, hey, I just got diagnosed. And they're like, welcome. Because I know when I meet someone and they tell me that they've just gotten a diagnosis, all I want to do is like give them a hug and tell them like, that's amazing. Like now you get to like start learning how to start applying those skills. Um that said, I think as we learn more about this, we are still in a zone right now where employers don't really understand what to do. And I want to come back to that point that I put the pin in, which is about accommodations. So um, just as an example, work from home. Um, a lot of organizations are trying to bring people back into the office. And for a lot of especially autistic folks um, through the pandemic who got used to working at home and were having like the, the best working time of their lives potentially because they're able to like be in comfortable clothes and not be in an ovary sensory stimulating environment. And I'm obviously not speaking for all autistic folks, but that is an example of something that people found that accommodation very useful. And now they're trying to bring people back in. There's this question around how do you balance between what the business needs and what the people on your team need? And I'm not sure there's an easy answer to that, but I'm curious how you're addressing that problem um, because when you when you talk about interviews and uh, creating a situation where you know you could allow people to apply for a job without interviewing and maybe other people do and it's like how do you balance the needs and accommodations of all people uh, while still attending to the business needs like how do you do that balance? Yeah, and I think it's a great question. I think there's 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 a sort of uh, tributary of that question, which is sort of how do you balance, if you like, sort of process versus creativity almost because. You know, a, a business needs systems, repetition, structure, and so on. It also needs uh, to allow uh, different ideas to, to flourish and, and challenge those processes, improve them, but also say, actually, look, we don't need processes over here because what we should be doing is is this. So I think, you know, those are those are big, um, some big sort of questions for, for businesses, organizations to, to balance um, fundamentally. I think if we're talking about what do we want and how do we achieve it, we're talking about a team. What do we want? We want people ultimately to perform at their best. That's what's going to create the, the best impact. And everything we've seen suggests that flexibility uh, is valuable there because people don't work in the same way, because people don't process information and, and, and experience the world 
in the same way. So the less flexibility we have, the more chance we have of the structure we impose impinging on people's ability to perform at their best. And as I wrote the book, and of course you're conscious as you're editing it of are there any words you're you know repeating ad nauseum the one word I just thought gosh I've used so many times and I sort of can't get rid of is flexibility but for all those those reasons um I think when it comes to some of the topics you've mentioned accommodations and and working from home um let, let me let me just explore those for a second um first of all working from home I think we've got to be careful with this because everybody is different. And again, we come back to the not just everybody thinks differently, but autistic people and so on, just hugely varied uh, groups. And when it comes to preferences like that, there's just so many other things playing in. So people always ask me, you know, junior, junior divergent people sort of like working from home or like working in office. And, you know, everybody's different. It's like asking British people, you know, do you like working from home or or not. I have a friend who's autistic. Uh, he's also extremely social and he's in his 20s. So he hated COVID because he was stuck working from home. Other people would say, and I would put myself in this category, that sort of managed sensory experience uh, is something that, uh, that they value. But again, it comes down to flexibility. I think when we talk about accommodations, what we're talking about is how to soften the edges of an imposed structure. So when we do want everybody to work in a certain way, in a certain place, in a certain environment, you're gonna find uh, some challenges there. And so there's a load of stuff we can do off the bat. I've talked about flexibility, but also some of those uh, environmental considerations and really embracing this idea of universal design. So if we are going to have a physical environment if we are going to have a structure let's do what we can to make that fit everybody off the bat and that can run right to the proactive provision of things like headphones or um, earplugs if we are going to have an open plan office acknowledging that you know that doesn't work for everybody and really accommodation should just be the little cracks that we don't spot and what we want to make sure is people feel comfortable to say actually to get me working at my best i might need this thing changed or modified or i might need this little extra thing and to make sure those conversations are welcomed and that the individual themselves is truly in the driver's seat and solutions are not imposed on them they're not necessarily asked to waive a doctor's certificate it's you're one of our team, we're paying you a lot of money, let's get you working at your best, let's get you loving your experience with us, what can we do to, to, to make that be the case? It's such a tricky issue though, because like on the one hand, I think to myself, scale is often achieved through process and repetition totally. and you know, kind of creating a uniformity of, to a certain extent, like you scale with an, with a, with a production line. Right. But at the same time, innovation comes from people thinking in different ways and doing things differently. So you have this tough, delicate balance, because let's say you have a team of six people and six people are trying to do things efficiently. And you've got one person on the team who needs to do things differently. It's, there's a challenging business case to be made for allowing that one person. And then there's always this issue of what's fair, right? Quote unquote fair. Well, you know, Jeff's ADHD and you don't 
give him a hard time of showing up at, you know, nine o'clock when we all have to show up on time, but you give him a little bit extra flexibility. Why is that? That's not fair. Right. So it's like, there's this delicate balance between how much do you make people assimilate or have to, um, uh, kind of assimilate is really the best word, I guess, forego their own needs in service of the team at times versus how much do you encourage the team to, um, to be more flexible in their own ways to allow for each member of the team to participate. And you kind of talked about, you said before, like we pay you a lot of money and we, you know, we, we trust you to do your thing and tell us how you work best. But then there's those people who aren't paid a lot of money and it seems cheaper in a lot of uh, business people's mind. We could just replace you with someone who's less quote unquote difficult, who doesn't need so much. We could just fit someone in here who, who fits the mold. How do you address this bigger problem of what's fair when do you accommodate when do you uh, kind of force assimilation to a certain extent how do you manage these conversations in in your world yeah i think i think it is difficult i think the key is that you want to in you want to inject a, a debate layer around all of this stuff because what you don't want is it to be happening without those debates and what i mean by that is allowing uh, space for uh, the discussion of what fits best, of whether a communication channel we're using in a team is working for everybody, you know, allowing people to uh, voice uh, concerns or even just contribute to strategy in, in a different way. You know, do we at least have the uh, consciousness and conscientiousness that these differences exist? Because yeah, I can't I can't give a perfect answer that this is how to balance process and innovation. But I think the acknowledgement of that tension and the redressing of the balance so that, yes, we're trying to put process in place and we respect that. But doing that ad infinitum is not going to work because the lifespan of companies has plummeted. Everybody's being disrupted. And if all we're doing is just smashing out the first idea we've ever got, we're going to be disrupted. That doesn't work. Equally, we can't, you know, we can't just all sit around everybody doing their own thing because, you know, we have no product, we have no production line. Where does that balance? Like, I, I, I'm, I'm afraid I would say to people to at least embrace the debate and make sure that the creativity piece isn't lost amidst the process piece. I love it. Um, so I could talk to you for days about this. I'm just so interested in the work that you do and what you're doing, but I also realize that we're both limited on time. Uh, so I do want to, uh, make sure we leave some time for the shareables and some other things. Um, the, the last question I'll ask you on the neurodivergence, uh, and neuroinclusive environment piece is just, if you could, uh, pivot to maybe some practical takeaways and tips for people, uh, specifically, what are some things that someone could go and do in their organization as a leader or as somebody who is, uh, part of the neurodivergent community and wants to advocate for themselves and others. Like, what are some practical tips you would take? Uh, you would give to somebody listening right now that can make for a more neuroinclusive environment. Totally, and I know I know part of your audience is is leaders. Uh, I I think what you can do um, as a leader immediately is to be much more willing to surface your own preferences when it comes to how you work, how you communicate, how you problem solve and so on with your team. And what's great about that is by surfacing your own preferences, you almost remind yourself that's what they are. They're your own preferences. They're not necessarily the way to do things. And actually everybody else has theirs. 
And you can do that and you can kick off a conversation with greater psychological safety. You're not asking people to disclose, but you're simply acknowledging your way might not be everybody else's way. I love that as a starting point. I think that leads to really strong conversations. I've, I've seen you, Jeff, in the past talk about uh, similar stuff, the kind of user guide uh, piece, but really just digging deep into your own style and recognizing and surfacing it and recognizing that that's not everybody else's. Um, I think that's in, important and letting people contribute in, in a different way. One thing I want to pick up as well a little bit is uh, hiring mm. because I do think that's important. And I do think part of this sort of hidden, if you like, sort of this, the lava under the surface of the volcano around not being inclusive is people being excluded from hiring processes. I would encourage uh, whoever you are to really think about neurodiversity in hiring. Uh, I would start by being extremely intentional about what are you trying to achieve from this new role and therefore what are the skills and experiences you actually need. Don't ask for skills and experiences you don't need because a more literal thinker might think, gosh, I'd be brilliant at this, but you've asked for this as well. And, you know, that's not something I, I quite have. That is and such a good that, point. I just want to like underline that for people listening. If you are, um, you know, a lot of folks who are autistic are very literal thinkers. And to that point that, that is, I hadn't even thought about that, but you, a lot of people will see a job description like, Hey, 80% of it, I'm good. And they'll apply for it. But someone who's very literal might look at that and say, Oh, I don't qualify. So I really appreciate you calling that out. I hadn't even thought about that, but that is such a good point. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's this sort of minefield throughout um, hiring processes and, and a lot of interesting, uh, interesting stats as well. I mean, 72 percent of hiring managers say that they provide clear job descriptions. Only 36 percent of candidates agree. So something's going wrong there. And if you're asking for, for communication skills, you know, what type of communication skills? Because some people are very good verbal, not so good written and so on, you know, being being specific. But what I like about the intentionality piece, I think that then runs through everything you do as you hire. So if you think about how you assess, well, what are these outcomes we're looking for? And then to what extent is the social performance of an interview a good test of that? It might be if you're hiring for a radio presenter. To some extent, it might also give you a good forum to dig into some of the personal attributes that you've identified would suit a job. But just to be conscious of, you know, what are we actually looking for here? All sorts of other points around as well around, you know, being conscious of bias and so on. But I'm, I'm conscious of, uh, of our time. But big picture, it's just thinking about neurodiversity in all aspects of our interactions and talent management. That's the as you mentioned earlier, that's the the dent we're trying to create for businesses. I think it's a, a profitable one for them once they uh, once they see that that's uh, a good thing to do. So look at everything we talked about so far in a sentence. What's the clear takeaway? What should somebody walk away from this episode having learned, thought, changed? Yeah, I, I think I, I'm probably laboring the point, but it is that every interaction you have at work, but everywhere else, but we're talking about at work, takes place between different brains. You have your own thinking style, uh, whoever you are, whatever your neuroidentity, and so does everybody else. Be conscious of that in how you communicate to people, whether it's in sales, customer success, your boss, your colleagues, and so on. 
Um, and as you are able to shape process or choose technology and good things will happen. Awesome. I want to uh, do the shareables with you and just give you uh, an opportunity to recommend some things. This is like what we do on social media. We share stuff that we think is interesting. So I got four of them and I want to get your take on them. Helps me build my reading list and my new podcasts. Uh, what's something that you've read you think everybody should read? Well, I love Explaining Humans by Camilla Pang. I think it's a fascinating uh, book. It's uh, part popular science, it's part memoir of somebody who describes their own neurodivergent brain as a Ferrari, one that can be the fastest, most glamorous car in the world, but can also kind of crash and come off the rails. Um, the pieces I love actually about this uh, book is that she talks about how cells in the body collaborate and they have this very distinct roles there's no office politics. It's just let's all help each other. And she has this wonderful contrast between that and how humans interact at work, sort of infused by kind of the uh, you know political layer. And it's just a wonderful realization that how we collaborate oftentimes is far from optimal. So I just found it a fascinating read. I think anybody, uh, you know, pretty kind of neutral in terms of topic just you're interested in people i hope you are i think you find this a, a fascinating a fascinating one awesome and that adds to my list that is right up my alley i've been looking for another book on uh with any sort of uh connection to neurodivergence so fully in on that uh what's something you've listened to that you'd recommend that people listen to it could be music related it could be podcast it could be anything that you can listen to I enjoy many podcasts, just to pick one uh, on topic, if you like. I love the At Work in America series. Uh, I think they do uh, a great job of surfacing some of the uh, big priorities at work, almost sort of before they before the wave crashes, if you like. Uh, a lot of interesting stuff around belonging and well-being before those became sort of super HR uh, buzzwords. So I always I always enjoy that show as a way to not just kind of reflect and reflect uh, refract, uh, refract what's happening, but also actually sort of tell us what's around the corner as well. Love it, love it. Uh, what's something you've watched that you think everybody should watch? It could be a TV show, it could be a movie, it could be a TED talk, it could be anything. Long you can watch it. Yeah, and I want to want to go for here is a crime series uh, originally Danish Swedish called The Bridge. There's an American version, sad to say American version is not quite as good. Uh, the reason I want to choose for uh, this one is neurodivergent people have been very negatively represented in culture for really the last hundred years or so. And as part of the research for my book, uh, looked at how neurodivergent people had been represented in film, in books, in plays and so on. And you see this kind of the results of the of, of the pathologizing of some of these differences. And neurodivergent people are portrayed as less than um, stupid, difficult, and so on, with none of the nuances and certainly none of the, the strengths. And I think when you think about workplaces, you think about the cultural ignorance that neurodivergent people often face. It's because not only have their interlocutors not learned what neurodiversity is, but they've had this sort of impression from culture 
that suggests, oh, you can't possibly be autistic and female or that sort of response. I have a, a, a friend who uh, disclosed as autistic to colleagues and they said, I'm sorry, because that means you've got a shorter life expectancy. I don't know where they got that one from. Anyway, the reason I chose the bridge is that the main detective is a very glamorous, probably autistic woman detective who wonderfully bucks many of the stereotypes of uh, neurodivergence and places somebody with their neurodivergent strengths in a key role. Now I could find, you know, I could nitpick the role, but I think this is the sort of thing I'd like to see more of to help us appreciate some of this different thinking. Excellent. Well, I'm going to give one to you if you haven't seen it yet. And for if you have, this is just for the listeners, but on Netflix, there's a show called The Extraordinary Attorney Woo. Uh, mm. It's a Korean drama. If you haven't watched it yet, oh my word, it is so good. Um, it is so, so, so good. Top to bottom. Um, autistic attorney. And she's great. Right. And I just, I love the show with all of my heart. It's so good. Um, all right. Last question from the shareables, which is uh, what's something you've learned recently that you think is interesting? You think people should know about? This is like the the very, this is a very neurodivergent question. Cause it's like the, the, you have a thought past your mind and you go and you Google it and you learn it because your brain is itchy and you need to know it. Like what's, what's the thing you've learned uh, that you think is worth people knowing about? Yeah. I, I mean, th 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 there's, there's obviously a lot in this, uh, in this space that, that kind of speak to the, the urgency of it. Um, not so much a, a, a data point, but seeing how organizations are not hiring the best people uh, would be one and we've seen cases where organizations because we've trained them just in time have hired somebody who had the best resume and have admitted that previously they wouldn't have done um, but I also want to call out uh, some of the data we see around just the neurodivergent experience and more than half of neurodivergent people at work again perhaps this is one in five people overall struggling with communication with their colleagues there are major evidence pieces here that suggest this is a pretty urgent uh, topic to address. Great. Um, I want to give you a chance to shamelessly self-promote yourself at this point in the show. So tell people where can they go and connect with you, where they can learn more about you, where they can email you, find you leading the way, buy your book, all the things. There is no shame at this part in fully promoting yourself. I strongly advise people to go and pick up your book, even though I haven't read it yet. After speaking with you, I'm I'm sure that it's a phenomenal book and, and it's it's definitely next up on my list. Thank you, Jeff. Well, it's been a pleasure to to talk with you, and I, you know, I, I really appreciate your own passion for for the topic and everything you do to to bring this into to your work. So I've really enjoyed the the conversation. Yes, self promotion isn't one of our national uh, English strengths, actually, <laughs> but uh, I, I've um, I've tried to get better at it. So yes, do visit us uh, optimize.com, u p t i m i z e dot com. I'm always happy for people to reach out to me personally. So I'm at Ed Thompson, ed.thompson uh, with a P at optimize.com. Uh, and the book is called A Hidden Force, Unlocking the Potential of Neurodiversity at Work, available on Amazon uh, and other retailers. Amazing. And we will have links to all that in the show notes. So if you're just listening on your phone, swipe over, scroll down, whatever it is, and you should see links to absolutely all of that. 
Uh, Ed, last thing we do on the show here at Shareable is we like to close out with some gratitude. And this is entirely about my guest and your experience here. But um, I wrote a book called The Lovable Leader. And when I say the words lovable leader, typically people in their head have someone come to mind. And this is somebody who cared about you. You knew that they cared about you. You knew that they cared about your well-being and your growth. And they, they just cared about you. And you trusted them. And they probably trusted you. There was a mutual trust there. You sensed that they had your back, you had theirs, and that there was going to be consistency and they'd meet expectations. Uh, they also made you feel safe, right? They gave you big goals and they made it feel like it was okay to fail on the way of those goals and that it was okay no matter what happened there, you were safe to go and pursue those goals. So to me, that's what a lovable leader is, someone who cares, where there's trust and where there's safety on the way to your big goals. And what I like to do in the show at this point is I mute myself and I give my guests the opportunity to whoever that person is that came to your mind, I'd like you to speak directly to them, not to me, directly to them, and just thank them in whatever way feels authentic to you for the contribution that they made in your life, for what it was like to work with them and to have their lovable leadership uh, impacting you. Thank you. Well, I'd like to address this to my first boss in private equity, Robert who hired me and four days into my first job, I had a car accident. And I was then out for, as I say, a long time, but six months fully out, no, you know, no, no work for six months. And your empathy uh, was incredibly valuable for me. Uh, the belief that you showed in giving me the first job was then extended to that compassion and patience as I came around to be able to actually uh, contribute. And I think you also had the awareness, which I think a lot of leaders lack with the millennial type, that, look, this might not be my full career, but I'm going to do my best and I'm going to uh, explore and I'm going to try and add value in any way I can. You didn't try to put me in a box uh, you allowed me to contribute as I could physically and as I could practically. Um, and when I told you I thought it was time to move on, despite your patience and compassion, uh, you took it with great grace. Uh, so thank you. So tell me, what was most valuable or useful for you in this episode? Send me a message or hit me up on social media. I'm easy to find, but there's links in the show notes just to make it easy. Seriously, I'd love to hear from you. If you enjoyed this episode, there's a couple things you could do, starting with subscribing to the show. And after that, head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate the show five stars and leave a review. Consider sharing this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. Or just buy me a latte or an old-fashioned by hitting up that tip jar. If you're looking for a good book to read, may I suggest The Lovable Leader? which covers how to build great teams with trust, respect, and kindness. It's built exclusively for brand new managers, and it's a handbook that will serve you well in your journey of leadership. Just search for Lovable Leader wherever books are sold online. And finally, if you're interested in working with me or checking out any of my other projects, go to jgibbard.com. That link, as well as every other link mentioned, will be found in the show notes. Stay safe, be kind, and seriously, share this episode with someone. I'll see you on the next episode of Shareable. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm.